Welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme, recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we put the pedal to the metal with the featured storytellers from Drive, our second show in our action-themed season held on December 27, 2016 at Jump, our new all-ages venue in downtown Boise. Here's a test drive of our three featured storytellers. Laura Martin is in overdrive, scheduling the giant potato on its transcontinental truck trips. Elijah Jensen Lindsay goes on a drive that changed the face of everything. And Jodine Revere has to drive crazy on a motorcycle to the hospital in a foreign country while hallucinating. It's time to take action. It's story time. Ladies and gentlemen, Laura Martin. I can tell you right now I'm going to have a hard time standing still. Um, hi, I'm Laura. I am the tour director for the famous Idaho Potato Tour, which means that my job is to manage a six-ton potato driving around the country. And I know you're sitting there going, Laura, how did you get that job? I'll tell you. Um, I work for a design and marketing firm here in Boise called Forest Hill Design. And one of our clients is the Idaho Potato Commission. And about six years ago, they came to us and they said, oh my gosh, we're gonna celebrate our 75th anniversary and we wanna do something big. We wanna do a coffee table book of pictures of Idaho or a commemorative tie with like potatoes on it. And we were <laughs> like, wow. Okay, Idaho Potato Commission, bring 50s calling. Um, so. One of the brilliant people I work with named Linda came up with this great idea. She said, you know, have you seen those postcards that, that have been around for about 75 years? The ones with the big potato on the flatbed truck? Um, and we're like, yeah, yeah. She goes, what if we did that only like on steroids? Like we actually designed it and made it. We're like, yeah, oh my God, that's brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, let's do it. So everyone in the office got busy designing this huge six-ton potato on the back of a bright, shiny red truck. And we took it to the Idaho Potato Commission, and for six months, we tried talking them into this. And we were like, can you just picture it? Big potato driving down the road, people going like this. What was that? It was a big potato, Ed. Oh, yeah, okay. People chasing it trying to take pictures. You know, it, it'll, be, it'll be famous. It'll, be, it'll make more famous of the famous Idaho potato. Finally, after that six months, they're like, oh, yeah, we see it. We get it. Let's build it. Do it. We were like, oh, crap. Okay, now what are we going to do? We got to try to figure out how to build this thing. We got to try to figure out how to make a six-ton potato and on back of a red semi-truck. And luckily, we have found some amazing talent here in Idaho, um, some great sculptors that live in Weezer, Kenworth, you know, a lot of people that came together to put this truck together. And, you know, we, we decided that we were like, great, we're going to build it, and now what after that? You know, we've got to try to get it around the country. And me being an Idaho girl, barely stepped outside of our Idaho walls, haven't been anywhere, haven't talked with a lot of people over the country. It was my job to try to figure out where to take this truck. I had to figure out where we're gonna take it in the country, what kind of events we're gonna do, you know, on and on and on. And I kept thinking, oh my gosh, I gotta talk to people 
all over the country. I don't know what people are like all over the country. My exposure to people all over the country is watching TV, like CIS or something, all those shows, you know, so there's just murderers and thieves in every other state. And so anyway, we got the truck built. We hired some amazing people. We have, we've always been very fortunate to have great uh, Tater team members that travel with our truck. <laughs> I know, it's funny. I run Tater Central, I love it. Um, and so anyway, we send it out on the road and we're thinking, okay, so our, our best hope, keeping our fingers crossed, is that people love it. But then we were like, well, what if people hate it? <laughs> What if people, it gives people another reason to, you know, boycott Idaho potatoes, you know, like toe tapping in an airport or something like that. Um, so we, we took our chances and we're like, okay, we're going to do it. And I'm not going to lie. <laughs> we have tater haters out in the country. We do. I know. Um, <laughs> we found this out because, um, well, we actually coined the phrase because the truck has to go through way stations and we have to have permits, we have to have, you know, there's all sorts of regulations with traveling with an oversized potato. <laughs> it's, it's a Department of Transportation thing, I promise. Um, and so going through these way stations, you know, the people who work there, sorry if anybody works at a way station, sorry. Um, but y'all have an authority complex at way stations, all the people that work there. So a lot of times, you know, we couldn't get through because a permit didn't have an I dotted or a T crossed or the date was wrong or who knows, whatever. Um, so we started coining those people tater haters. And then we were kind of like, well, what if other people hate us in the country? And the funny part is about way stations is those the authority complex people, they, they can talk to sheriffs, they can talk to people on the road. And we actually, I think the first way station person that we called a tater hater actually had our truck impounded. <laughs> We had an impounded one night. It was in jail. It was in potato jail for one night. Um, so that's how we got the phrase tater hater. And so the more that we talked around with people around the country, um, you know, we found there's other people that kind of hate the tater. Well, one of them would be toll booth, toll booth workers. I mean, I think they see the truck coming down the toll booth and they're like, whoa, whoa, no, we can't fit that, whatever that is in the toll booth. Um, except for this one time. Um, when the truck was in Maine, and anybody who's driven in Maine knows that the roads are a little itty bitty and they have toll booths on every road. Well, it was a holiday weekend, and that the truck was, you know, coming up to this toll booth, and this toll booth worker was like, jeez, oh, look at that thing come in. Go ahead, yeah, go. Yeah, no, go. You can totally fit. You can totally fit in that toll booth. Truck goes in and gets stuck. We know that that tater hater was laughing their butts off about that point. So there was really no way to go forward or backwards. So we had to call the sheriff department and my team did a great job. They made a big joke out of it on social media. They were like, hashtag wedged, you know. <laughs> you guys got it, you got it. Um, so, <laughs> so the sheriff finally came and they're like, you know what, there is, we have to just have you back it out. There's no way we can get it out of there. Um, so, you know, my driver backs it out in the meantime, scraping all the metal off of the side of the truck. Yeah, it was great. We're like, thanks toll booth worker. So that was, that was one incident. Um, another time that, uh, I had to get the truck into somewhere very in particular, Manhattan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah, you have to have a note from God, a blessing from the Pope. 
the Batmobile to lead you in in the stealth of night to get that truck into into New York. Um, well, I gotten all my permits, gotten all my notes and my blessings and my Hail Marys and all that, got the, got the blessing to get the truck into Manhattan. Except for one thing, that I had to call a, a police department. I had to call this one precinct where the truck was going to be located to get special parking permits. So I call this precinct. I'm supposed to ask for Sergeant Joe. So the precinct picks up the phone. They're like, hello. I'm like, hi, this is Laura from the famous Idaho potato tour. Get the fudge out of here. <laughs> you know, he didn't say fudge, right? <laughs> Get the fudge out of here. No, um, sorry, sir. This is Laura from the famous Idaho potato tour. And I need to speak with Sergeant Joe. <laughs> okay, hold on. Shuffling, phone comes over. Hey, this is Sergeant Joe. Hi, Sergeant Joe. This is Laura from the famous Idaho potato tour. Get the fudge out of here. I'm like, oh God, a New York tater hater. How am I going to deal with this? So I'm like, really, Sergeant Joe, this is Laura from the famous, shut the fudge up. Who the fudge is this? I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly what I pictured New Yorkers to be. And, and so I'm like, sir, please, can you please shut the fudge up? Who the fudge is this? Who the fudge put you up to this? Who? Who? Shut the, get the fudge out of here. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, sir, sir. He's like, I'm, I'm fudging done with this. And instead of hanging up the phone, he just sets the phone on the desk. And I'm like, oh great. I can just, I'm like, now what? So the other sergeant picks up the phone. He's like, hi, this is Sergeant Ed again. You know, really, who is this? I'm like, really, sir, are you in front of a computer? Could you please just go to BigIdahoPotato.com? This is going to make our conversation go so much easier. Because right now I'm scared shitless in Idaho. Like, from what that guy just said. So he pulls it up. And then all of a sudden I hear the whole precinct just erupt into laughter. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, phew. okay. He gets on the phone and he's just laughing. He can't even hardly talk to me. And he goes, he goes, this is Sergeant Ed again. He goes, <laughs> he goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He said, I thought the guys were busting my balls. I'm like, okay. He goes, really? I was born in Nampa, Idaho. <laughs> right? And he's like, I, I moved to Brooklyn when I was four. And so I then these guys kid me all the time about having Idaho, you know, potatoes for balls. And I thought they were just busting on them. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that was the funny story ever. And so anyway, anyway, you know, just being able to talk with people like that all over the country. I mean, we've, we've had event requests from the Kentucky Derby to, you know, one of my favorites, um, Jacob Walker, who's the smallest boy in the world, which is kind of interesting. Um, he's a Make-A-Wish kid, and his Make-A-Wish was to have the potato come and make a visit to him. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, I expected people to maybe like us. I kind of expected people to hate us. <laughs> Um, but what I didn't expect was the fact that, that people were so kind, like everywhere. I mean, I had to call Florida, I had to call Maine, I had to call Oklahoma. I mean, we set up events. We've done events for the last six years in all 48 states. And every event that I've worked with and every state that I've worked with and every person I've talked to has been so wonderful. I mean, who knew that a six-ton potato <laughs> would restore my faith in humanity. And, you know, 
I kind of, when I took this job on for my company, and my company's very proud of what we do, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things that I kind of win at the story table and jobs, you know. Um, but I didn't expect that um, this job of managing a six-ton potato would drive me to do the best I can do every day and do the best that I can do for all of the people all over the country that I get to talk with and have the potato drive to. Thank you. We're gonna move on to our second featured storyteller, this talented man who's sitting right here to my right. Please welcome Elijah Jensen Lindsay. I want to. I'm glad to be here, and I want to say thanks for the invitation to come. Um, so yeah, my name is Elijah Jensen Lindsay, um, and the story I have to tell is about about inner voices that drive us. So on August third, um, two thousand nine, this was a little over seven years ago. I woke up in the ICU of St. Alphonsus Hospital uh, with a tube in my throat and a demolished face and a catheter jammed in my urethra and news that my mother had not survived the accident. But before I really get into the tragedy that brought me to that place, I, I, I would like to talk about some certain experiences that I had that prepared me for that place. And I'm going to try to not be teary-eyed. Um, I'm, I'm not a storyteller. I'm just sort of a person with some stories, you know. But I'll start by telling you an experience I had in 1999. My friend Ginger and I were on a road trip. We were uh, in the Pacific Northwest looking for a beach. It was the middle of the night. We were driving, we were reckless, we were 19 years old, and, and we thought, let's find a beach. And so you just, in, in the middle of the night, you just look for signs, you're like, that's a parking spot, let's go find it, and we, and we parked. There was a massive windstorm taking place, pitch black, and we just, we parked the car and we set foot towards the sound of the ocean. Blindly walking through this windstorm was kicking sand up in our faces and blinding us. And so we just, we just wandered through the dark. Ginger was holding onto my shoulders, and so I led her along the way. As we're nearing the sound of the ocean, I hear a voice in my head, a very clear voice that, that said, Elijah, tie your shoes. And of course, it was, this was summertime, so I wasn't wearing shoes, I was wearing sandals. There was no reason to tie my shoes, so we kept walking, and Ginger's holding on to me, and the, the wind and sand is whipping our faces. And we walk, and we follow the sound of the ocean. And again, that voice comes and says, Elijah, tie your shoes. And I say, no. And we keep walking. And we're blindly moving through the dark, and the sand continues to whip our faces. And the third time this voice says to me, Elijah, tie your shoes. And it comes loud and clear. And I, and I, and I like a goof, I'm just like, okay, voice. Okay, I'm going to check my shoes. These sandals that have no shoelaces, I'm going to check them. And I did this. 
I mimicked the act of tying my shoes. But what I saw down there at my feet is what shocked me the most. And I realized that distant sound of the ocean that we'd been following was not far off in the horizon, but a hundred feet down below as I stood on the edge of a cliff. And I had not felt that voice before, but that voice came. And I stared down into the abyss and I, and I saw, and actually could see the thrashing of the waves hitting the edge of the cliff. And I didn't say a word to Ginger. I just walked, <laughs> walked to my left because that's the last thing you want to say to someone who, who's, who's been following you is like, I almost killed us. And that's the last thing you want to do as a 19-year-old boy, say, I had some feelings. <laughs> and they, and they, they saved us, you know? Like, there's just really no way to process that in the moment. And Ginger still doesn't know. My friend Ginger still doesn't know this story. But in that, I learned what my voice sounded like. And it wasn't my voice, but it was this inner voice. It was a, it was a power, right? We've, we've all felt that. And, I think we're all driven by that at some point in our life. And I carried this knowledge with me later, years later. This is 10 years later. I'm in New Jersey, right? I've never been to New Jersey before, but I've been sent there for work. I'm a carpenter by trade. And there's this whole chain of grocery stores called Pathmark. Um, anyone know Pathmark? Any huge Pathmark fans? I saw a hand over there. There's like 200 of these things in the Northeast, and I'd never heard of them before, but I was shipped out there. And I had to build these produce bins in the middle of the night, from 10 a.m. to six in the morning. And I was living in a hotel, and I was a wreck because my schedule was thrown off, and I couldn't have my coffee. There was no good coffee in the Northeast. And I was just a wreck. I was drinking hotel grounds, and in about a week in, I started to get some sleep deprivation, and about two weeks in, I really was kind of bananas. You know, I'm in this like strange land, completely different landscape, not getting any sleep. And this is, this is around the time of Lady Gaga being really popular. Like her first song, Poker Face, was out. And it was playing on the radio in the grocery store all night long. And it never stopped. And so I'm hearing Poker Face and I'm losing it. I'm literally losing it. <laughs> And I would get home at six in the morning and, and, and there, was, there was this one morning where just to try to help myself fall asleep, I like found myself in like an internet wormhole and I was reading about Harry Houdini on his Wikipedia page, who you all, all everyone knows Harry Houdini. But he was this master of, of, of losing, loosing himself from entrapment and I was just really fascinated by that and reading about him. And while I was doing that, and you know the guy, one of the guys I was working with, he's snoring on his bed, and and I'm I'm, I'm I just I, but I hear this voice, and the voice says, "Take a walk, it's so nice outside." And so I do. And this town I was in is called Clifton, New Jersey, and I, I I just sort of started meandering through the side streets of this quiet neighborhood in Clifton, New Jersey, and looking at people smoking on their patios saw a plastic bag drifting through the wind. 
I was like looking for things, you know. If you've ever heard a voice to tell you to do something, all of a sudden you're looking for codes and messages and clues. And here I, here I was on a quest. And I'm following this trash bag. Sort of, it's like moving through the wind and, and this voice says, don't follow that trash bag, take a left. <laughs> There's this quiet little meadow to your left, and there's a road bridge over there. Go under the road bridge. And so I do. I, I follow, and I go under the road bridge. And it's littered with, with soiled mattresses and graffiti, and it's a nasty, awful place. And I find a pile of books, these discarded books. But they're all paperback. They're all identical. There's like 100 of them just sitting in a pile. And the voice says, pick one of them up. And so I do. So to jump back to the hospital that I found myself in years later, the, one of the first things that I woke up to, of course, was your mother has not survived. And one of the next things I remember hearing was from one of the nurses saying, stop ripping your catheter out. And, and it just seemed like the right thing to do, though. It seemed like the only thing I could do. I was, I, was, I was in so much pain. I was in excruciating pain. And I thought, well, at least this is a sign that I'm alive. At least I can rip this catheter out. And I don't think you should try to stop me. And in those moments, I thought back on, on words that my mother had shared with me. She, let me tell you a little bit about, about my mom first, other than the fact that she's my true hero and best friend. She was a wonderful woman. She had these two uh, slightly crooked teeth that were just perfect to me, and her smile was the world. And she skipped wherever she went, and she sang a song everywhere she went. And as I sat in this hospital bed, I thought back on those words that, that I remember so clearly. My mom sang to me. She turned to me and said, Elijah, I don't care what you do with your life, so long as you're happy. And so, yeah, I'm going to rip that catheter out. <laughs> and so many visitors came and said, I'm so sorry your mom is gone. I'm so sorry you're gone. And my jaw was wired shut. And so all I could do was nod and agree. Yes, I'm sorry too. So I took this book through the road bridge. And the voice came to me and said, what's the sound? What's that sound? What are you hearing? I was hearing the sound of water again. I'm hearing this rushing of water. And it says, we'll find out where that water's coming from. And so I do. I have to break through a chain link fence to do it. And I have to bust through some bramble and I have to like kick some bushes over. But there I am, finding the source of water, the Passaic River, this foul, polluted, disgusting river, and it is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. 
And I opened that book. It's called The Jewish Connection. And it is this trashy, awful book written by an evangelical minister somewhere far, far away. And it's a book about how the, how the Jewish celebrities are trying to take over and rule the world, basically. So I open it up, of course. Of course that's the case. So I open this book and it's like, oh, Alan Alda and Goldie Hawn, and of course they're gonna destroy humanity. And, and, though, and deep in the middle of the book, though, I find, I, I, look at, I look at a face, I see this haunting face, and I, I read the caption below it, and it says, Harry Houdini. And I don't know if you all remember, but earlier, like, because I'm walking us through a sort of, like, stumbling dream, I was already trapped in, in the mind space of Harry Houdini. And out of nowhere, I, I, I was struck by lightning, I was struck, like deep down to my heart and my mind with this feeling and the sensation that these puzzle pieces were locking into place. And I'd been led to a place that I needed to. And I bowed down and I stumbled and I fell over as an agnostic, atheist pile of crumbs and said the first prayer that I've said in decades. So to tell you a little bit about like how close I really was to not making it. Like the, the whole anatomy of a face is, is it's designed to like, you know, look attractive or whatever. But also you got this thing in the front here that's like really fleshy and susceptible to, you know, if you ever get like hit with a basketball, it smells like blood and like a penny, right? We've all felt that. My nose was pushed up into my forehead that it was within a millimeter of me um, crushing my brain, basically. I was thrown 50 feet from the vehicle. My dad was the driver. My mother and my brother were passengers. We were all asleep. But as my father fell asleep at the wheel, you can, you can imagine that we were all cast into a really awful nightmare together. And in the aftermath of this, it's been a devastating loss. But what I found in the midst of that is like an inner peace that my, my therapist, I now see a therapist, I think everyone should. But she says that, that I touched on, this peace that I felt was touching on what it's like to become human, to face death, so to speak. And so I'm, 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 I'm piecing together these things for you here right now, and I, I, I know that they're all pretty like esoteric and like coming from a, maybe a weird space. Jody said earlier, like, like I'm, I don't answer emails and like my voice, I'm a little scattered. But I think, I think what I'd like to do like in this part of the story is I will use notes for sure, but I'd like to read you the prayer that I wrote down in my journal that I, that I spoke that day. Dear God, whoever you are, it's Elijah. Please 
allow me to be like this river moving along instinctually without care or guile. Allow me to be like a flower, a blossom. And when I die, let my petals float on this river. Let them settle where they may, but please let the blossom be remembered quietly. Allow me patience and gratitude for all my surroundings and the strength to reach for the beyond that is inside of me. Give me the focus and strength to express my heart to all I can. I don't believe in the God outside of me. I believe in the God within. I hope you understand. And please, I ask for your blessing in my pursuit of the now, the devotion to the here and the now. Please keep this with me always and continue to guide me. Be well, Elijah. And when I say the word God, it is with capital G. And I don't think that it's your God or her God or his God that applies here. It's, it's, it's our own personal inner God that guides us and gives us a voice, gives us a sensation of viability and a resource So after I said this prayer, this goose, I'm going to guess it's a Canadian goose because I'm up near Canada. It takes off from the water and I watch it and I'm looking through, through the tears in my eyes. And if you've never looked through your eyes filled with tears, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a magical experience. It's like the old movies, right? They used to put Vaseline on the lens. And I looked at this goose and it flew away and it had this like awful, disgusting string dangling from its leg. And I thought, now there's my omen. There's my omen. There is the message from God. And the message that it had to say is, you are beautiful, Elijah. You are boundless, Elijah. There are no rules and no one to follow but yourself. You've got this, Elijah. Thanks for listening. Jodine Revere. Um, hi. Um, okay, so I have this story to tell you. A long, long time ago, my gay boyfriend and I we're, I know that's a different story though, but it's true. So my gay boyfriend and I are in Southeast Asia together and on this big, long, sort of cheap, on the cheap, wanderlust kind of trip. And we're two months into the trip and we're in Thailand and we're on the island of Koh Samui and we're walking down the beach and there's a tiny restaurant on the beach and there's a huge hand-lettered sign that says, we serve magic mushroom omelets. So after we finished, you know, cracking up and taking pictures of that, and since it's 9.30 in the morning on a Wednesday and we're unemployed and on the other side of the planet, this seems like exactly the place we should have breakfast. <laughs> so we go in and there are huge, like, cookie sheet trays stacked with mushrooms. And then on top of the counter are three pizza pans, like a small, medium, and large pizza pan. And those depict the sizes of the omelets that you can order while, while you're there. So after much deliberation, he thought that we should each get a medium to eat. And his, uh, yeah, his rationale behind that was, well, they wouldn't have a large if a medium was going to kill you. 
And I said, so we, we had to talk that through. And I was like, okay, let's each get a small. So we each get a small omelet, eat them. He's like, I don't feel anything. I think we need to have another one. So more negotiation. We get a small one and split it. I give him a little bit more than half of mine. We finish it. The kid who runs, who's working the restaurant comes by and picks up our dishes and he's laughing and he goes, in 15 minutes, you'd be crazy. <laughs> so this is our ominous beginning to our morning. So we leave the restaurant, we go to the beach, set up camp on the beach. I'm starting to feel rather electrified at this point in time. You know, skin's kind of prickly and the hair's kind of standing on end. And if you turn your head too fast, there's like a whole bunch of color that suddenly happens out of the corner of your eye. And um, I'm like, wow, are you feeling this? He goes, I don't feel anything. And he goes, I'm pissed. I'm going to go back and get another omelet. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's completely insane. You can't do this. He's like, I'm going to go get another omelet. So he takes off down the beach. And I'm laying on the blanket sideways. And he turns into like this two-dimensional stick figure cartoon character about halfway down the beach. And I watch him. And then he stops. And then he turns towards the ocean and stands there for a really long, long time. And then he turns and he starts making his way back towards me on the beach. And sure enough, the stick figure cartoon character turns into my friend. It's amazing as he gets closer to the blanket. And he comes up and he's like, he's ablaze. And he's like, I am so glad I didn't get another omelet. <laughs> and I said, I know, right, good, good call. So we're sitting on the beach, we're counting individual grains of sand, and we're like, can see all of the water molecules and the waves, and it's amazing. And at one point I made the mistake of closing my eyes, and I almost disappeared into outer space, but when I opened my eyes again, I was suddenly shot back into my body, so I didn't close my eyes again for the rest of the time we were doing that. So we're on the beach, I have, you know, time, drug time, I have no idea how long that is. I have to pee. And then I realized that what this entails is I have to wade through the sand dunes 50 yards to get to our room and then try and negotiate all of this. So I wait as long as I possibly can. Finally, it's like, okay, I got to go. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'll be back. And he grabs me by the wrist and he goes, whatever you do, don't look in the mirror. <laughs> and I, I said, okay, okay. So I, I wade through these undulating sand dunes to get to the room, and then I take a, a melting key and put it into this breathing keyhole, and that takes a lot longer than you think that it would. And I get the door open, and I throw the keys on the bed, and I go in, and I pee, and I'm walking out of the bathroom, and God, there's a mirror like right in my peripheral vision, and I just, I, ha I have to look at it. So I go, and I lean into the mirror, and you know those um, photo images where they like layer photos and there's like multiple people's faces in them? Okay, so my entire family lineage is like staring out of my eyeballs. It's me and my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother and like every ancestor and they're all packed into my head and they're all looking out of my eyes. And the cumulative effect of this is that I look like I'm a thousand years old. So I completely freak out, race out of the place, slam the door closed behind me, make my way to the beach, and my friend has lost his stuff at this point in time. He's like, you've got to get me back in the room. I have to get out of here. I can't be out in public anymore. It's way too much. 
So we pack up our stuff, we go back to the room. He's sitting on the floor outside the cabin. I'm going through the bag and I can't find the key. And I'm going through the bag and I can't find the key. And we all know the key's on the bed, right? On the other side of the door. So I'm thinking that if I do this three times, that somehow the key will magically appear in my bag. And while I'm still doing this, one of the other guests who's staying there comes by and he goes, are you guys okay? And I said, yeah, we just ate a whole bunch of mushrooms, but we're gonna be okay and we're gonna go inside and we're just gonna rest for a while and it'll be fine. And he said, your friend looks really bad. So I turn my attention to my friend and he is ashen and shallow breathing and eyes kind of rolled in the back of his head. And all of a sudden, like from deep in the pit of my stomach, I'm like, oh my God, I have to be in charge of something now. Like in the midst of all this, I have to be in charge of something. All of a sudden, I'm inside my mother's body. I can hear her voice coming out of me. I can feel her body. It's like having like a being John Malkovich moment, only it's not creepy and it's your mom, right? And so I take this automated mother machine into the other room and I said, excuse me, we've eaten many mushrooms and we need help here. And they laugh and they say, yeah, yeah, everybody eats a lot of mushrooms. And I said, no, you don't understand how many mushrooms we ate. And I tell them and it goes quiet. And they said, okay, we're gonna have someone take you to the other side of the island. I'm like, great. So I go back, I get my friend, we go out into the gravel parking lot and I'm waiting for the ride. And the 14-year-old kid who busses tables comes around the corner on a 1977 Honda motorcycle. <laughs> and he's motioning for us to get on the bike with him. So I get on the bike behind the kid and my six foot four gay boyfriend gets on behind me and I have his legs wrapped around and I grab him by the face and I said, no matter what, don't move and don't put your feet down, okay? And he nods, he nods. So I have a hold of his ankles and off we go. So the road is this dirt road that runs straight through the jungle. And it's like we're standing still and everything around us is moving. We are inside of a video game, man. And it's just jungle and green trees and electronic tracers off of everything. And every once in a while, a herd of, of prehistoric chickens runs across the middle of the road that completely freaks me out. And I'm in this and I think, you know what would be so amazing if I just put my down. There would be rooster tails of dust behind me that would be spectacular and it would be so cool. And I hear my mother go, don't do it. And then I think, okay, okay, okay. And I turn around, I look at my friend and I can see by the look on his face, he's thinking exactly the same thing. And I said, don't do it. Don't do it. I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. He's like, okay, okay. So we finally get there. It's, you know, drug time. It could be seven days it took us to get to the other side of the place. We pull into the dock in the box, we go in, I tell the story, so many mushrooms, yeah, 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 everybody eats mushrooms, no, we ate a lot of mushrooms. He's like, oh wow, you guys ate a lot of mushrooms. Um, he said, so here's what we can do. I can give you like this bromine, bromine stuff, the stuff that makes you barf, right, those things. Um, something to make you throw up, and then you just have to walk. You just have to move it through your system until you're not like this anymore, but I think that you're gonna be okay, it's just gonna kinda suck for a while. So I get my friend, we have the stuff, we throw up, we start walking around, we're walking around, walking around, and then he just stops, sits down, and he says, tell my parents I love them, and I am really sorry, and he passes out. <laughs> and I go 
ape shit. I grab him by the neck and I slap him as hard as I can across the face. And I'm like, you son of a bitch, you are not going to die and leave me on the other side of the planet because we're in this because of you, right? So you better get it together here. And his eyes kind of come together and he says, don't let me go to sleep. Just don't let me go to sleep. And I'm like, okay. So I pick him up, I have him draped over one shoulder, and we walk. My mother's body is walking us, and we're walking and walking and walking. And eventually, things start to get to a point where there's like moments of normalcy in this. And so we keep doing this, and eventually it gets to a point we go back, we find our way to the motorcycle kid, and it's like, okay. So we go back through the jungle. It's way more enjoyable going back than it was coming through on the other way. So fast forward, many months later, we finished this trip. We're back in Idaho. I'm up in Sun Valley. I'm visiting my mom. And I tell her the story. Um, and my mom, her eyes are getting bigger. And it has nothing to do with the drugs. My mom is like listening to this story. And her eyes are really big. And she's kind of stopped breathing. And she said, I know this story. Like, I saw this. I was there. I can see the buildings. I can see the tree. Like everything you were telling me, I was like, I, I know this. I know this. So we had this really amazing moment of, wow, mom, we're even closer than we thought we were. <laughs> and um, it was really beautiful to have sort of that amazing bond being on the other side of the planet and still feeling that, that connection to her. So that's my story. Big takeaway, three takeaway, small omelet. Don't look in the mirror and don't put your feet down. <laughs> and in this new, this new era of where there are no such thing as facts, right? There's no such thing as facts. This story from 1984 is true. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Bob Haycock, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the Drive Show sponsor, Lithia Lincoln of Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Show photography by Paul Budge. And our musical guest was Elijah Jensen Lindsay. Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support this storied program. Get tickets to our live show. And stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night.